I want to invite you to go ahead and be seated. Just stay where you are as we continue in a spirit of worship and prayer. We have much to pray about and much to pray for. So I want to just invite you where you are just to quiet your hearts, close your eyes, and uh, pray silently. And we'll spend several minutes in prayer here, and I will pray a prayer from a a pastor friend um, in just a minute on our behalf. So let's pray. great God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created all things, the God above all gods, the God who was and is and is to come, the God who never changes, the God who never slumbers nor sleeps, the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon us. We're in the midst of a global pandemic, more than 100,000 lives lost in this country alone. We hear new cases, new hospitalizations, new deaths. Lord, have mercy. In the last three months, 40 million Americans have entered the ranks of the unemployed. Many who still have a job are scared. Others are anxious, depressed. Lord, have mercy. As states reopen, some cities and neighborhoods, even some families and churches are snipping at each other over masks or no masks, reopen quickly or reopen slowly. COVID is worse than you think, or this has been a massive overreaction. Lord, have mercy. As Christians, we have grieved to be separated from the people we love and care for. We've been forced to give up meeting together for a time. So much about ministry seems harder, more uncertain, less fulfilling. We don't know when normal will return or what normal will look like or what to do in the meantime. Lord, have mercy. A white police officer in Minneapolis put his knee on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes, murdering a black man made in the image of God while three officers did nothing to stop the injustice. Lord, have mercy. The anger and fear and pain felt in the black community isn't prompted by this one incident alone. It comes out of the legacy of slavery and for many times where power and force were used against them in ways that are evil and unjust. Lord, have mercy. Every time we witness another tragedy like this, we know it makes it difficult, the honorable job of law enforcement, almost impossible. Many police officers risking their lives to serve and protect will suffer unfairly because of actions done a thousand miles away, actions they condemn, actions outside their control. Lord, have mercy. And now we see dozens and dozens of our great cities torn apart by senseless destruction and violence. Businesses have been burnt down, grocery stores destroyed, neighborhoods ruined, lives threatened or lost. Lord, have mercy. You have our attention, O God. Give us ears to hear. What do you want us, what do you want to say to us in your word? What should we do? What needs to change? 
How can we help? We pray for justice for the murder of George Floyd. We pray for those living in utter chaos and darkness in Minneapolis or facing the loss of property in Atlanta, Portland, Los Angeles, Seattle, Louisville, Oakland, St. Louis, Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York City, Nashville, Charlotte, and here in Dallas. We pray for, for, for repentance. We pray for all those who have responded in sin and those, perhaps all of us, who have harbored sin in our hearts toward those who seem to be on the other side, part of the other team, those who vote for the other party. We pray for whatever reforms might be necessary to give hope and healing, dignity, and a feeling of safety to our black brothers and sisters, especially in your church, Lord. We pray for the bravery, the safety, the fortitude of our law enforcement officers. We pray for our Collin County mayors and police chiefs and county judges. God, give them wisdom, strength, integrity, grace as they lead through these difficult days. We pray for our political, religious, and civic leaders. May they be humble, honest, measured, principled, open to good ideas wherever they come from, self-sacrificing, disciplined, courageous, and compassionate. And where we have such leaders, may we listen to them and follow them. And where our leaders do not exhibit these qualities, help them to change and repent. We seek the peace of all the cities of this great country. We ask for your strength and protection upon our churches from division, dissension, political disputes, and anything that would rob our effectiveness and witness in this world, may we truly be a light in the darkness. We weep, we lament, we mourn, but not as those who have no hope. May gospel beauty rise from these smoldering literal ashes. May truth triumph over lies and grace conquer lawlessness. May your people be one as you, Father, and your Son are one. May the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, rise up as an example of love and with a message of salvation for a weary and war-torn world. Give us grace to serve you, O God, and if necessary, the grace to suffer for what is right. Give us the peace and health and safety we do not deserve. Give us the reformation and revival we need. And all God's people said, Lord, have mercy. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome. It is uh, truly great. Oh, I'm off camera. Uh, it is great to be back. It is great to be ba gathered back in here. It is great to have the air conditioning that we did not have uh, for the weeks that we were meeting outside. Uh, we have been studying through the book of Colossians for the last uh, numerous weeks. Um, but I want to take a break from Colossians again this morning to just 
focus our hearts upon the state of our world and the state of our hearts in this time that uh, is different, I think, than any of us have experienced before. I know, at least in my lifetime, I have not gone through a season in the world like this. As I wake up this morning and watch the news and read the headlines again, I'm astonished at what seems like a nightmare as I turn on the television. And I'm sure the same is for many of you. Some of you lived through the 1960s and have fought in wars and have endured trials. But for many of us, this is truly um, unprecedented times. And the question that I want to ask this morning uh, is a question that we're all probably thinking of in some way or another, and that is, what's wrong with this world? What's wrong with this world? It was during the Second World War that a British paper posed that question to political leaders and authors and scholars and university professors asking, what's the problem with the world? And one letter that they received back that was quite brief was from the Catholic writer and theologian G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote back to the paper simply this brief response. He said, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. Often we think that the problem with the world is somehow out there and that the answer to the world is in here, in me or in my ideas or my answers or my worldview or my politics. The scriptures teach, as G.K. Chesterton said, that we're all guilty that we are all sinners that have contributed to the breakdown and the brokenness of this world in various and ways and in differing degrees, but we are all sinners. But that wasn't the way that God intended it. In fact, uh, this story begins all the way, of course, uh, in the beginning of our scriptures where in the beginning, in those first pages of the Old Testament in Genesis 1 and 2, there was not death. There was not this division. In fact, as you look in the perfect creation of Genesis 1 and 2, what do you find? You find beauty, beauty that's unmarred, beauty that works perfectly. God is in perfect harmony with man, or I should say man is in perfect harmony with God. Man and woman are in perfect harmony with one another. Nature is working properly. There's not tropical thunderstorms. There's not hurricanes. There's not volcanoes. Animals are not eating one another. Life is working, and it is this beautiful diversity that God has created working together in harmony and unity. And what happens in Genesis 3? What happens in Genesis 3 is the problem that we face for the rest of the history of mankind. And it's this thing that our first parents began, and that was the choice to sin. 
And from Genesis 3 on, we see the results of that sin and we inherit that sin in human nature. And so what began as diversity in beautiful unity now is diversity and division. And where there was once integration, there's now disintegration in the world. And man and women, man and woman fight and nature is at war with itself. And man has rebelled against God and there's now this disintegrating of the peace and the shalom and the beauty of what God originally created and therefore division comes because of this thing, this intrusion, this abnormality, this cancer called sin brings death, and what is death except for division? Think about it. When someone dies, their soul is divided, is separated from their body. And the effects of sin and the nature of sin is divisive. So that ancient serpent said, let me get in here and divide the man and the woman. And that's been his ploy ever since. And the effects of sin are disintegration, disharmony, and division. And a lot of times we uh, may kind of have a superficial or kind of shallow understanding of sin. We are now at a time when we should think deeply about the truthfulness of sin and the depravity of man. And you may be thinking, well, this is a real downer as we gather back. But it's time to think about the nature and the consequences of sin because a lot of times we think about sin just like this. We think about sin, oh, that's the, the bad choices that we make. But sin, the Bible would tell us, is, is, is more than that. It's broader than that. It's more all-encompassing than that. It's more extensive than that. And it does have this divisive nature to it. The Bible would tell us that sin is not just in our choices, but it, because of our relationship to Adam and Eve, sin is in us. We have now inherited it in our nature. So if you will, it is like a disease. And have we not been thinking about a disease? And what is a disease except it wreaks havoc and it divides the healthy from the sick. See, just look at our social distancing here this morning. The result of disease and sickness and sin is that we have to separate from one another. Lest we contaminate one another. Sin is not just the choices that we make, but it's this disease that all of us have inherited. Now, kids, I want to ask you to ask your parents a question. I want you to turn in just a minute, and I want you to ask your parents the question, hey, what were the first words that I spoke as a young baby? Okay, go ahead and ask your parents that question. See what their answers are. Now, I bet the answers are varied. Uh, I know one of my children, his first word was ball. And that showed you just the affection of his heart, what he loved. 
Here's what, I, I don't know what your answer, does anybody wanna shout out what your first word was according to mom and dad or what you remember, what you were told? What? Dada, okay, excellent. What else? First words, mama. Did anyone say mine? Mine? Here's, here's what I will guarantee you. I'll give you $5 after church if kids, you can tell me these were your first words. No one in this room spoke their first words as thank you. Do you know what? Do you know that? That is just globally true. And do you know why? It's because we are born with this selfish, sinful nature that says mine, but has to learn the grace to say thank you. What is wrong with our world? It's sin. Now, do we face racism? Do we face murder? Do we face looting and rioting and thievery? Of course. But underneath all that is this condition that mankind has, this disease that mankind has called sin. Just for a few examples, I have a lot of passages, but I'm not going to share them all with you this morning here. But Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each of us to his own way. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've, we've gone on our own. We've said, mine. Or another certainly popular one, Romans 3.23. What does it say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now I want you to think with me for a minute about the, the verb tenses of that verse, okay? I know school's over for the summer, but just hang with me here. For all have sinned, that's past tense. Everyone has sinned. But the rest of the verse says, and fall short of the glory of God. And that is present tense. And in the Greek language, it's present ongoing tense. All have sinned and all continue to fall short of the glory of God. None of us have met the standard. All of us fall short of God's perfect standard. A couple definitions of, of sin. One theologian has said that sin is anything that does not conform to the glory of God. Failure to meet God's right expectation. The theologian Augustine in the early church said that sin is love's our loves not rightly or not properly ordered. So we don't love God as we should and we love other things as we shouldn't. Our loves are disordered. Another theologian has said, sin is any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. And what I hope to challenge all of us with this morning is that the sin is not just out there, but the sin is in here. That it's not just those out there that are guilty, but it's all of us that have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. And sin is not just the choices that we make. It's not the, just the disobedience that we do. But it's more multifaceted, more all-encompassing, more total than that. Malcolm Muggeridge was a British author who grew up the son of a socialist communist dad and converted to Christianity. And Malcolm Muggeridge wrote this. He said, total depravity or the sinfulness of man is at the same time the most empirically verifiable doctrine and yet the most intellectually resisted. Do you get that? We don't, we don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about the darkness of our hearts. And yet, the depravity of man is the most empirical, empirically verifiable thing in the scriptures. In the scriptures, all you have to do is open the paper. All you have to do is watch the news this morning to see that this world is not as it should be. It is beautiful, but it is broken. And we sin not only by missing the mark, but by overstepping the mark. We sin not only by commissions, wrongs we've done, but by omissions, goods that we haven't done. And sin encompasses all parts of us, all parts of humanity, all parts of our person, mind, emotion, and will. It's, we don't just sin in our actions, but we sin in our attitudes, not just in our deeds, but in our motives. Our sin is also not just individual and personal, but it's also communal and systemic. Sin taints our hearts and it wrecks our world. I wanna give you not only those definitions of sin, but I wanna give you also some descriptions of sin so that you have this full-orbed, comprehensive picture of what is happening in our world. Other folks have described sin like this. It's corruption. What is corruption except something that has good, something that is good being spoiled, right? Or another word picture would be tainted or stained or spoiled food that has gone bad is spoiled. It's a good thing, but when it's spoiled, it has gone bad. That's sin has made things go bad. Or another word picture would be sin is our bentness or the twistedness of our humanity or the destruction of good or vandalism, you might think, as a description of sin or pollution. What was once clean is now polluted. What was once good is now perverted. And you think about sin, you can think about it in words that begin with dis or words that begin with in. Listen to these descriptive words. Disintegration, I, also, I already mentioned. Disobedience, dis-ease, disease disfigured, dissension, distortion, dislocated. Sin is all those things and does all those things. Listen to these words, injustice. It's the absence of justice. 
ingratitude, the absence of thankfulness, inequality, and lessness. How about this? Faithlessness, godlessness, lawlessness. Sin is what we do, it's also what we don't do. Sin is not just the bad things, but it's the good things gone bad. It's not just the good things that we love more than we should, but it's the good things that we take and make a God thing. We are sinners. So what is the solution to this sin problem, to this condition. And what you think is the main problem in this world will reveal what you think the main solution is. However you describe the problem is how you will prescribe the solution. So if you and I ultimately think that the biggest problem in the world is ignorance, then we will think that the main solution is education. And if we believe that the main problem in the world is poverty, then we will think that money or economic systems are the main solution or the savior of this culture. Or if you think that politics or an evil dictator or socialistic system or some type of political system is the main culprit, the main problem in the world, then you will think that a political system or a political party is the main solution to what ails this world and our hearts. And all of those things, the Bible would say, are bad. God has given us education. He he has given us government as as good things, as a, a way to bring about justice and punish evil. But Jesus looked upon even the religious people and said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, will not a good father give good? Jesus called all of us evil. He said, it's not what you put into your body that makes you do bad things. It's what comes out of your heart that causes this damage in our world and this brokenness in our world. That's the bad news. And apart from the bad news, you don't appreciate or see the good news. And as we go through this chaos of 2020, I mean, 2020 is like perfect vision, right? I mean, this is the year and look what we have. Craziness from pandemics to racism, to riots, to looting. And all of it at its core is hearts that have turned away from God. And if the real problem is sin, then the real solution is a savior that can rid this world of sin, which brings with it injustice, inequality, all those things. But as long as there is sin in this world, 
There will be injustice. There will be inequality. There will be the disintegration of life as it was intended to be. So what is it that we have as believers in Jesus? Well, we have the diagnosis that is right, that it's all-encompassing, that that we have this disease and that there is this cure for the disease and that cure is God's grace. That cure is the, the Savior who has come and taken our righteous punishment, the punishment that all humans deserve. And because he's a just God, he paid for that payment. He paid the consequence of all of our injustice of all of our disobedience, of all of our rebellion against God and all of our apathy towards God. Jesus came to put right this world to pay for the injustice and then to offer us forgiveness because he had paid the payment of justice. So Jesus the only righteous one, the only one without sin, the only one who had not rebelled on this earth goes and dies a criminal's death so that he could forgive sinners without excusing their sin, paying for it on the cross. I will take your, pun your punishment and I will give you my righteousness, not by your goodness, but by, by my grace. And as I give you that grace and I give you the down payment of the Holy Spirit, your inheritance, your heart will be changed to love me and to love others. See, ultimately change comes from the inside out, not the outside in. So though, so though this sin and this brokenness is internal, God internalizes his grace and gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can then begin to be lovers of God and lovers of our neighbor. And as we love our neighbors, preview this perfect kingdom that is to come, that Jesus promised. This is not my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. But I'm going to recreate it where it will be perfected. And so Jesus comes and he gives us forgiveness through the cross and the down payment of the Holy Spirit and begins to warm cold hearts and to move people that don't love God or don't love their neighbor toward love. And as you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus, we have the privilege of extending that grace of forgiveness, that unmerited grace, that unmerited forgiveness towards sinners who don't believe it, who don't deserve it and don't yet believe it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to go there, verses 14 through 20, I'll conclude with this because it gives us this ministry that we have as those who have been reconciled to God. We are now about a ministry of reconciliation, bringing what's apart back together, bringing what's been divided back to unity. Beginning in verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, for the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we've seen his love on the cross. 
For the love of Christ controls us. But because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. From now on, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, I love this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Sin has been forgiven and righteousness has been given. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Let me say that part again. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to God, okay? Christ has reconciled us to a holy God and now he doesn't just leave us reconciled, but he calls us to be ministers of reconciliation in this world, extending the grace of Jesus and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Verse 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. If there's any group of people that ought to be about reconciling the world, it should be you and me. It should be believers in Jesus who have first been reconciled to God and now have this ministry of reconciliation by grace to love our neighbors as ourself. Because what did our leader say? Anyone can love their friends, but I want you to love your enemies. And you can only do that by grace. You can only do that as God has transformed your heart by the cross of Christ and as he empowers you by the spirit of Christ that lives in you. That's the only way we can love our enemies and extend grace to those that we think don't deserve it. So let me ask you this question. What are you doing? What can you do to extend the ministry of reconciliation in this world? Most of us will feel, hey, I can't do much. But what can you do? I was convicted last week uh, because we, we have a very diverse neighborhood. We have a very diverse even street and I couldn't imagine what minorities in this country must have felt like as they were experiencing the injustice that they saw on television. And so I felt compelled as I was out mowing my lawn to go to my neighbors, to my black neighbors, and I took them a bottle of wine. And as he opened the door, I just said, hey, Jason, I want you to know we love you guys and we're so glad you're our neighbors. Could you do that? 
could you extend grace? Could you say, I'm not against you, I'm for you? I've also found myself, uh, as I've been out shopping, trying to catch myself, trying to smile at those who are different than me before they could smile at me, to greet them and say hi, to extend grace, love. I want you to know I'm not your enemy. I'm here to protect. I'm here to serve as the leader the savior of my faith did himself. It's Christians that have the power and the opportunity to extend that grace. See, we follow a dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jew who died to forgive his enemies while forgiving his enemies. That's powerful. The leader of our mission did not hate his enemies. He died for his enemies. He sacrificed for people on the other side. And in turn, he has given us by the power of his spirit, this ministry of reconciliation. Will you be about it? Will you step out? Will you take risks? Will you befriend? Will you invite people into your homes? Would you extend your hand and a handshake? Would you hug those that don't expect it? Would you offer care for the hurting right now? Would you give of yourself and of your funds to rebuild a war-torn country? It's what Jesus did what Jesus would call us to do. Pray with me. Father God, we grieve. We grieve at the state of our world. We grieve at the state of our own hearts where we still feel discrimination or anger or anger or frustration for those that we feel are discriminating against others and therefore judge them. Father God, would you work by your spirit to move our hearts in grace and to be agents of reconciliation, agents of unity in a world that is so racially, politically, philosophically divided, religiously divided, God. Would you help us be peacemakers? It's for the glory and the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.